0: Hello! Welcome to episode 165 of Legally Clueless. Welcome to the fam if this is your first time listening. Remember you can join our fuzzy corners of the internet on TikTok. We're at Legally Clueless Africa. Same as on Instagram, the links actually to those pages are in the show notes. Make sure you also, if you prefer Twitter, when you chit-chat about the podcast, use the hashtag Legally Clueless and then check out our YouTube channel. There's tons of African stories to watch and we I've been to quite a few interesting places on our tour series so yeah you can watch that as well there's a link to our youtube in the show notes audio episodes like this go out every single monday Ooh, another thing if you have been listening to the podcast you get the gist you know all about the african stories and you want to share a story on this podcast there's a google form to fill it is also in the show notes fill it out please put an email address that is uh, one that you check often <laughs> so I don't feel ghosted. Um, yeah, so when you fill it out, I'll go through it and I'll get back to you and we'll figure out a place in time to record your story. And we record stories virtually as well. So wherever you are in the world, it's possible to be on an episode. And speaking of episodes, this is what's coming up in this one.
1: Then I was trying to learn hacking again <laughs> using the computer. And guess what? A virus got onto it. And that virus only shows porn. So every time you open Internet Explorer or whatever browser, the first thing you see is porn. How do I explain to my dad? So he came to use the computer. He was like, "I want to browse." I'm like, dad, it's not working. It's like, "No, you open it." I'm like, "Daddy, this computer is spoiled." He's like, "No, no, no, no. Press it. Open it. Double click it." The look on the face of my father was like, "You be watching pornography?" I'm like, "No, I can explain."
0: Yo, that part in his story always cracks me up. So that's bright story, and we're gonna get into to it a little later in this episode the song of the week listen the song is like i actually just checked because the music video was uploaded on youtube eight years ago so it's pretty old but it's so good and it's got such good energy and it's just like ah This past weekend, I was just playing it on replay, even while driving and just like singing out the lyrics. I really need to get my windows tinted because anybody who sees me in traffic must think I'm crazy. But back to the song, It's My Day by Taurus Riley. It's such a feel-good song, but it's also pretty deep. So... As you jump to it, listen to the lyrics. And I put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, I hope you like it. So I'm recording this on Mother's Day, which is an awkward day for me and very many people who have lost their mothers. This year, I was smart in March. As soon as it got to like my mom's death anniversary, it's weird to call that an anniversary, but that's what people do. Yeah, so as soon as it got to that day, I just recheck that ad unsubscribed from you know like stores etc any organization or business that would probably have a mother's day campaign i unsubscribed only one was forgotten and luckily they sent their messaging very early so i quickly unsubscribed so at least i didn't have to dodge too much because i found the other mother's day i'd be like Dodging things on social media, in my emails, it would just get too much. I mean, I still feel like grief is really kicking my ass. But today, I don't know, I it's so crazy because I spent like the first <laughs> decade of my interaction with grief trying to ensure I was not alone. But now I'm finding that being alone is more healing, especially on days that are slightly triggering, it's it's different. But I'll get to that in a bit. Um, What I did actually end up sharing is a poem that I wrote. I think I wrote it in 2018, but sometimes I get to try to share my poetry. And it's called We Danced. And I really saw the first, and I really saw, you know, the 23 years that I got to spend with my mom before she died as being so full of life, even in the dark times. So expressive, even when... There was no space for words. So I looked at it as a dance that I did with this person who was a more experienced dancer. And we're dancing through these rooms, quote unquote rooms of life. And she would probably go into a room first and dance through each corner. And it looks like it's part of the routine or the moves she's actually like scoping it out to make sure it's safe enough for me to come in and join her in this dance. And, and we continue this going through the different rooms and just really doing this dance. This is my dance partner until she stops and she walks to a door and I can't access that room. And she dances her way in. Anyway, so... I, I don't know, randomly during the day, just remembered, wait, yeah, I did write about her. So I went back to my vault of poetry. I shared it on my Instagram. I thought I was going to read it here, but now I'm chickening out. And so I shared it on my Instagram page. But yeah, it's been a reminder going back to that particular piece about how things that are either painful or like I'm trying to figure out. I always have poetry to kind of help me maneuver. So gotta keep writing. <laughs> But the thing I wanted to talk about in terms of solitude and grief, if I could go back in the last 10 years and change something in how I interacted with grief, it's I would have more spaces of solitude, which is hard because immediately this person dies, you feel so lonely that you spend so much time and energy trying to ensure that you never feel lonely again or that type of loneliness. So you Spend a lot of time, at least for me, like over relying on others or immediately like trying to look for someone to like fill in for her so that that loneliness can stop instead of confronting it. Or you try and just overly rely on others and be there for them, even relationships that don't necessarily serve you. I would rather just take uncomfortable relationships so that the person doesn't go and then I get that loneliness again Eh, no thank you you know I think to some extent I even started looking for you know my mom in others and they they couldn't first and foremost they were not aware this was happening (laughs) and secondly I mean that's a bit unfair because they they can't be her and it would be to this day so frustrating wanting them to act like her but I had to also call myself up I mean there's some people who are strange but uh, like yes they're not able to act like her but they also have some very harmful behaviors there's that but that was also not fair or efficient of me and it was just you know you're trying to run away from feeling this enormous huge weight of loneliness that you feel as soon as somebody super close to you dies. And you know, you're you're not prepared for it. It's out of the blue and it's so heavy. And the reason I say if I could go back, I would just add a bit more solitude is that it would have helped me identify very quickly what my mom's death had broken in me and had broken in even just like my identity. I didn't know just how much of a blow grief deals your identity, especially when it's somebody who is so intertwined with your identity. So I would definitely add more moments of solitude, even though in the moment when the death is so fresh, it is the last thing you need. Anyway, that's all I had to say (laughs) on that. I, I don't know. I hope it makes sense to you if you're navigating grief or wherever you are in your grief journey I don't know it might make sense to you it might not but it's just like the truth about where I am in regards to that. So let's jump into 100 African stories. Storyteller is Bright. Bright Gameli is a friend of mine. We went to St. Mary's together. And he's helped me in so many ways. And hanging out with him is always such such a delight. Bright is from Ghana. But his family have lived in Kenya for years. So we could say he he's definitely from, from here as well. And his story, I don't want to give up too much. His story is really his journey into, you know, the cybersecurity world with tons of humor and also tons of insights. A hundred African stories on legally clueless stories from Africa.
1: Growing up young, I never thought I'd be in computers, but when I was uh, six, seven, there about, I was so much into getting to know how technical things work. I got to a school to learn how to use computers. It was an 8, eight to 12 weeks course. It's usually 8 but you can do for 12. I finished in 6 hours when I got there. The first day I got there because the first two hours I was like this is boring. It's really boring for me so I man, it was easy for me and I wrote all the exams immediately and I passed. So that was the first and last time I think I've ever stepped into a computer class for certification it was called New Age Computer School <laughs> I remember Created my first computer virus when I was 7 yeah, 6, 37 to, I was pissed off my teacher really really gone on my nerves because she gives assignments and then you say, she expects you to do it in a short time and everybody hasn't really grasped things it was back then computers were new created a second virus when I was 14 on St. Mary's um, the reason was because we only had one computer which you can go to Fourteen, fifteen, 15 there about, which if you don't get there to the library, which had the only internet, you <laughs> I mean, you can't get access to the internet. So I created something which will show about 98% of Matrix, the picture, uh, on the screen. And it's only three combination of keys that only I knew. If you don't have that, you can't log in. You can't get in. My, my life around computers got quite interesting and later, of course, got into into trouble with uh, with law enforcement. I wasn't hacking. I just happened to be part of a chat room (laughs) that the people, they thought I was part of Anonymous, the hacker group at the time. So they came questioning me and it was quite interesting. At that time, trust me, I almost peed on myself. (laughs) But later when they finish, I'm like, I can come say it like right now. You know, I can come tell this story. And it's so much fun to me. And I continue that life of computers to undergrad, to my master's, my PhD, all in cybersecurity, now to help people. What I love of computers is the fact that it's always dynamic. Until date, I'm still learning something new. I'm still, I'm always going to learn something new. I keep on teaching people. I do a lot of mentorship programs. And... One of my prodigies, like um, he's, he's now he's now 17. Yeah. So every time, every year I put his name Mike, the 15-year-old, Mike the 16 year old, Mike the 17-year-old. And I started teaching him when he was 12. And it's just, he comes to teach me things. He's young, he's way younger than me. But he comes to teach me new tricks. So our computers is always changing, is it never ends always be a new challenge that I have to look out, look forward to. So I've been running something called Africa HackOn. It's been running for the past eight years and we just finished the last conference just, just last yesterday. And Africa HackOn's main aim is to nurture the next best talent in Africa. And I've been running that for eight years just to change people's perspective of cybersecurity, not to look at it as an offensive kind of thing. And to teach the young ones. The people that we've come up with right now, we did a, what we call a capture the flag challenge. Is basically, we create real life hacking scenarios Scenarios, or real-life companies you are supposed to break into them in 12 hours and it's overnight and when i saw the kids so we had a whole preliminary challenge whole of africa and we had a pre- the final challenge overnight on friday let me tell you something everybody who was there average age was 21 i'm 20 you're all young and they're doing really nice things and That means we're not going to have a lot of experts because right now there's this lack of expertise in in this industry. So it's just amazing to see the industry change. Even I learned more stuff from them. Let me take you back to a time when my hacking skills were showing. Same thing I was in St. Mary's. I was looking through. The network to say, what can I find interesting? I ended up landing in the headmaster's computer. Guess what? It had all the exams. Technically, I had exams a week before the exams itself. But Bright being Bright, I was nice. I went to to report myself. And I was like, why did I do that anyway? So there was a very close watch on Bright and computer. I had only one computer to use uh, when I went to IB. They could not let me use any other. And it was just... It was... That kind of lifestyle kept on growing. And I wanted to be a programmer, by the way, it just didn't work out for me. So I can read code, but I don't write code that much. Then now in Daystar is where things went crazier. Daystar, we had a a school block, three floors. I did a whole networking of the entire building that we can have internet from one source. And that was a nice project. And I started monitoring the entire school's network Getting internet all the way off campus. But the problem was where this, this is another hacking I did with a friend of mine, which we hacked for the telecommunication companies. And they had a modem. You know, those modems back in the day, if you don't have that, you don't have internet. It was the coolest thing. So I used that to sell internet to people off campus. So I basically started um showing people, I should say you can get internet for a certain period of time and you don't pay for it because that bundle if you buy a bundle for 100 shillings we can use it for a whole week with more than 50 people using it at the same time it doesn't it doesn't go higher and it just became a lifestyle like how can i just think of things and break them and it, it still works let me tell you something my parents are very interesting people and I, I think i got a lot of support from them but at the beginning they were worried that this computer thing is going to get me to trouble. When we came to Kenya, my dad bought a computer. And at that time, it was a very good computer at the time. I told him I wanted to go to a programming school. But, you know, we, there was a lot of financial struggle at the time for my family because all of us were in school, <laughs> universities, and it was quite tough. Then I was trying to learn hacking again <laughs> using the computer. And guess what? A virus got onto it. And that virus only shows porn. So every time you open Internet Explorer or one of a browser, the first thing you see is porn. How do I explain to my dad? So he came to use the computer. He was like, um, I want to browse. Like, dad, it's not working. It's like, no, you open it. I'm like, daddy, this computer is spoiled. He's like, no, 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 press it. Open it. Double click it. The look on the face of my father was like, you've been watching pornography?" I'm like, no, I can explain. But now, how do you explain that it was a hacking website that I went to and they brought that? So... It's a challenge. It was a challenge for him to accept that this is what I really wanted to do. He, to him, he wanted me to do medicine. I said, Dad, I can't even see blood. Me, if somebody injects me, it's already a problem. How much more? I think I'll kill people if I was the medical doctor. It, they, but they really supported me later when they started realizing that this is all that I wanted to do. And then my teachers were also encouraging me, them to support me. And they said, okay, you know what? Go ahead and do it. Right now, they are so proud of... Everything that they keep on getting messages now. Oh, we saw your son on BBC talking about cyber security on NTV You know and this is me just going everywhere talking about the thing that can protect people and they actually do the same now uh, My mom always called me. Um, I've seen these messages come in. I know this is efficient attack You know, it's a very, you know, you're like, wow, okay <laughs> Or they've told me to forward this, I know it. I'm not supposed to. Or my dad said, this Canadian email that has come, we know the guy just want to steal, you know. So schooling, in my getting to Daystar was also by mistake. I didn't really pass very well when I was doing my IB. So I, was, I went to Daystar to actually apply for information, information systems, a degree in information systems. Then the computer for the registrar got spoiled, <laughs> so I fixed it when I was there. They're like, you're really good at this. I'm like, yeah, I want to do computer science, but my grades are not strong enough. So they allowed me to use my predicted grades at the time to get into Daystar. And I started doing a- Applied Computer Science. Worst mistake ever. Because Applied Computer Science has physics. Bright hates physics. I can't do it. I love math, but I hate physics, which is a very, very ironical for a lot of people. But I did it four years down the line. Finished. I finished Daystar. I... It was tough for me, by the way. There's, there's, sometimes I fail exams. I, went, I was a 2.7 GPA out of 4.5, which is horrible. Then I got a job at Cellulant. And how I got that job, I was literally, I applied. Somebody told me to apply. I did, and they did not re- respond to me. They said the office is in Lavington. Imagine I was walking. I walked everywhere, door to door, asking, is there a company here that is technology-based? Then a friend um, called Randy showed, like, oh, there's one called Cellulant. It's down there. You go find out if he's the one so i went and the guy I was supposed to look for called tyrus tyrus was around luckily he interviewed me on the spot i'm like boss i'm not ready <laughs> i came to look for the for you to see if you got my cv because i've been really looking so it took me three hours walking around and i found a place and they did an interview for me and i passed passed and failed so they had two exams one was computer was cybersecurity, the other one was linux and databases I've never really used Linux that much and operating system, I failed. Databases, I have never really done anything, I failed. But the guy's like, no, let's give this guy a chance. That chance they took on me has changed my entire life. So I got in as an entry-level cybersecurity engineer, got hired fully. So after one and a half, one year, eight months, I got a scholarship to South Korea. Weirdest way, you're not going to believe this. My father went to, to South Korea, Busan. For a conference, there were 4,000 to 5,000 people. He kept bumping into this same guy every single time. Always. It's like, why are we always bumping to each other? It's been four days. There's so many people. But every lunchtime, we end up at the same table at different lunch points. It's like, no, I think there's something we need to talk about. So, Chicha, Chicha, the guy told the guy that, look, he's called Professor Young, that we, my son wants to do his his master's in in South Korea. I had never thought of South Korea. So there he said, I'll introduce you to somebody called Professor Park and he will guide you on everything. Do you know after the email Professor Young sent to Park and Park said, here are the forms, fill it and it's going to come through. Professor Young's email bounced, phone calls bounced. Adele Nyong'o, I have never met this man in my life, even when I was in South Korea for four years. I have looked for him. Who is this man? Eventually I got to find out Where his office was. I went there, they're like, no, nobody has been here for a long time. So, who is this mysterious man who got me a scholarship and I've never met him? He disappeared. So, I left Kenya, went to South Korea to do my master's. Weird enough, I was supposed to do only 24 credits. I ended up doing 42. Why? Because the Korean culture is different. The way they study, the way they're aggressive towards. Learning something new was just different. And I became a straight A student because I was just going for every class. Anything that I want to learn, artificial intelligence, geographical geo maps, coding in weird languages. We even did things like Li-Fi. Li-Fi, and if you don't know Li-Fi, is using light as internet. So we use sun uh, light rays to actually bounce off internet connection instead of Wi-Fi, which is in the air. Uh, so you can use light to open doors um we knew about 4g is 4g way before it even started coming out as a thing We were testing in busan vehicular security like basically um using solar panels to see it was just really interesting things that we're doing in south korea cyber security was the core part of me so i was learning everything so i overdid my credits and my professor wasn't around he came back um so did everything and you know for you to do finish your masters in korea you have to repeat three exams you've done before you've passed again in one sitting i did it i passed (laughs) on first trial most people don't pass on first trial then i apply for phd i didn't apply i came back the day i graduated i flew down my parents didn't know they're like "Uh uh-huh what are you doing here go back you're not done so i had to call people back in now in korea saying guys everything i sold to you (laughs) Bring it back to me and I'll pay you back for it. So I made a few losses here and there. So I applied for the PhD and instead of 36 credits, they reduced mine to 30. And in those 30, um, you're only supposed to do a maximum of six credits a semester because it's really intense. That's two classes a week and you have to write a paper for each class and publish it and present it into a journal, a local journal, international journal, and a national journal. (sighs) It was tough. Guess what? bright did 10, 10, 10. So one and a half years, I was done. I knew from the word go, I knew exactly what I wanted to do for my research, which is security awareness, um, did it. And a few friends here in Kenya helped me. We got to break into about 36,000 Wi-Fi passwords for one of the ISPs, put all of that cognitive reasoning and how do I create awareness for a country? So I wrote that paper, I wrote, I've published, I think, 14 papers. Which I need to look for numerous papers. Wrote my dissertation, presented it, and to finish PhD, you have to write five exams you've done before in one sitting. That's the most intense exams I've ever done. So I did that, passed, and again, I was a straight A student. So, Bright from undergrad who was struggling to get something, and now Bright getting straight A's, and it was just weird. And that's where my public speaking kind of thing came out. I went to something called 8th Asia's Joint Information Security Conference. It was the first paper I wrote. They've never seen a black man present at that conference. I was the first ever. And I hacked the network systems of the conference when I was presenting. So I'm like, wait, this was not that difficult that I can actually show people how I do it. Ever since then, I keep on presenting and talking about cybersecurity. And now we're at 152. (sighs) Korea, Korea, Korea. Korea was the most interesting place I've ever been. We had a lot of discrimination as a black man Um, whilst I was in Korea um, and also I'm not a language person so I could not really learn how to speak but there's some people who can really speak Korean they learn so much but it brought out a different personality some of the things that I've done I will show you videos you will never believe it I tell you I was an MC in a club I was literally hyping people in a club I organized dance battles I used to work in a cafe uh, it was an English cafe. So English cafes was very common in Korea. So what they do is you teach English to Koreans, but it's done by foreigners. Then on the weekends, you usually have a party. So I became the party organizer. And that club, I had a deal with the club owner saying, I would bring people, I'll bring a crowd, always, but I have to choose the music. So I pre-choose music. I asked people on Facebook what music they want, the, 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 the international community. I organized theme events and I had a corner. So I get absolute vodka for free. And Jägermeister because I don't have to spend I was broke but you think that would be the way Brett would make money <laughs> I did the most odd things yeah I used to teach English to kids um, but illegally because if you are Af- from Africa you cannot teach unless you have a South African passport yeah that's how it is in Korea and I was like but how am I gonna make more money so when you go to teach you have to make sure you hide that cops don't see you because when they get you, if they catch you it's $10,000 fine And they get deported as well for a few years. So it was always a risky thing, teaching kids English. But it was fun. I did babysitting to kids. We don't understand each other, but hey, if I say jump, you can understand jump, we are fine. (laughs) And my little Korean words that I learned. But the weirdest job I ever did, two of them, was working in the LG factory. I was making TV stands for LG and microwave knobs. It was a whole night. I did it for one night and I said, nah, nah fam, I quit. This is much by the fourth hour you thought you'd think you'd have worked we worked for the whole night. (laughs) Then I went to work in a rubber factory. And by rubber, I mean I was making dildos. (laughs) Yes, I was filling dildos. Um I did that for two nights and I said I'm done. So filling dildos was the particular type. There are different sections. There are people in the electronic part of dildo making and I was in the rubber section. (laughs) So what I did was I was filling with some sort of jelly. You know, one leg presses to come and the other one presses to fill and then you let it go. <laughs> the weird thing, you have to shake it. <laughs> oh my God. But when I leave that place, the pheromones in the entire building sticks on your body. So you're in, the, like, you're in the train and people are rubbing themselves against you. They're touching you. Everybody's attracted to you and you're like, why? Not knowing is the pheromones from the lab. It's a huge factory, trust me it's a business. That was the weirdest thing. And there was a club that, every Korean club usually have a pole. So I went for pole dancing lessons, which I never showed anybody. But I was dancing on poles, I had to do something, because you do that, you're fun. I used to sing all the songs, and even though, even if I know part of the lyrics, and I'll show you a video, try to rap, whatever it is. And when I finished that, people just gave me alcohol. But you know the weird thing also? When I'm doing all those, I'm writing papers. Yeah, I do write. I get inspiration from things that I hear from people. I have interacted with people that changed my life. I do one of my whole bartending kind of thing. I was a bartender. I took one of the club. I went to small bars part time. I met this guy who is a German guy. He said, you "Nobody know, just chit chat," and I bought him a Long Island. You know, just to give him like. Oh, thank you for the nice gesture. When he was leaving, dude bought a bottle of Remy Martin, Johnny Walker Black, because my friends were coming. He bought bottles for me. So I'm like, why did you do that? Like, I just, I'm curious. So it's like, come to my island where he stays. He stays on an island called Goje, and Goje is an island, but there's a road network to it. So I told him, I'll be late. I'm a guy of time. Koreans and time are like this. So you cannot be late for anything where somebody tells, there people tell, let's meet at 847, and they will be on time. So... I said, I'll come meet you at the island uh, for, for dinner, but I'll be late because I have to take some multiple trains to different places. And I'm broke. He said, no, take a taxi. Ah, huh? A taxi is going to cost me $150 minimum to get to where I'm going. He's like, yeah, don't worry. Do you know this guy made the taxi guy wait for me? The, the restaurant we went in, he, he paid for all the tables around us. doesn't want interruptions. His secretary was there, who earns $10,000, by the way, secretary. And he just wanted to show me the value of time and what you as a person who is of value. And I learned something from him. He has three phones. One local phone, one international, and has a satellite phone. He can pick calls in the air if he's traveling. Because for every time you call him, for the first, for one minute, it's a $1,000. He controls oil. He's, when drilling a, a new oil rig, he manages the people and the temperature and the knobs. The specific knob types, the, how many times you're supposed to screw something and the temperatures. And that's what he does. He just tells you what to do. He's an expert at that. So he told me, if you are an expert in cybersecurity, people need to know people need to know they can they have to pay you for your time. So I had to learn what value is. What do I bring to the table as bright? How do I charge for the hours that I spend or minutes? And imagine I applied that today there's a guy who pays me about a hundred dollars a hundred pounds every hour that he speaks to me if it's less than an hour fine still he'll pay if it goes one hour one minute you'll pay 200 200 pounds and that's something a lot of people don't understand about themselves how do you value what you do which i learned from that guy took me in his ferrari that's the guy still waiting there to his house his apartment was so freaking cool the elevator that takes the car to his floor Hmm? cools down by the time it gets up there and this entire house is fully-fledged bar. I think the view is just amazing. And I'm like, so where did you go to the restaurant? You could have just actually sat here and have a cool drink. And it's like, no, well, you know what? I didn't want you to see that side of my life before, before actually, before us talking. So that's just things to learn from people. I've met incredible people in South Korea from various countries, and I'm, I still talk to them. Living in Korea and um, in, in a very fast paced country, they don't sleep, first of all, if you don't know that. And I had to adapt. I didn't I wasn't sleeping. I was working on a lot of jobs in with Ushahidi at the time, about 20 countries trying to do security assessment for them and doing a whole lot of things because I just couldn't live the life of working in factories and stuff. That's not me. I sold computer viruses. I work with agencies around the world where I was researching for them. It's all just the time of the things that were making me pay small things. So I was trying to do that to build my CV. And mind you, I finished PhD at 28, (laughs) which was pressure. Because now I'm overqualified, on paper, and underexperienced on the skill side of things. Because I only did two years in Sullyland before I left. Applying for jobs. Where have I not applied? Every cybersecurity job in Korea, Lockheed Martin, as in I've applied everywhere, Google... At least I got an interview, the first part interview, and it was was nice to UK, US, South Africa. I applied to every single job in South Africa. But none of them was coming through. The rejection letters were coming over and over again. Let me tell you something, Adele. I cried the days I just break down when I'm walking. And it was tough. That why am I so good at what I do? I feel I'm good at what I do, but I cannot get hired. And that was just, it, it was rejection after rejection. Look, Anderson Young, name them. Then one company, it was Deloitte, Netherlands. I'm like, well, Netherlands, Why would I go there? But you know what, adventure, let me go try it out. Offered me a job, but the job offer I had to do a test, which was a security assessment. I did it, but I forgot one little thing, you know, in my reporting line. So I, I just, uh, I, I failed, which was, which was sad for me. So I had a lot of down moments where I was always breaking down, living in a foreign country. You, you think you have friends around, but it's not that easy. Everybody is on a hassle. Now I have to come back to Kenya, and I thought I was going to go back to Ghana. But again, I'm like, my parents are in Kenya, my family's here, my friends are here, let me come back to Kenya. And in between that, I came back to do Africa Hack On. Again, I was trying to do it every year. Um, so I got a job with, Deloitte offered me a job in South Africa, and good pay for a start, and I was gonna take that. But then I wrote back to Celluland, I'm like, I don't think you guys have any security personnel right now, because I, I was working in Celluland still, back and forth, and the time came, I came to hire new people. A whole team was gone, we had to do an emergency hire, I trained the people that I left when I came for holiday. So they're like, you know what, it will not be as easy as it was the first time, because things have changed. So I did a entire interview, uh, strategy building, how I'm gonna do things, so I came back, and that's how I got a job at Celluland again. This is after almost 68 applications that I've done worldwide. Rejection after rejection. Somebody even replied to you. Man, it was tough that I'm overqualified and inexperienced on paper. It just wasn't sitting down with a lot of people. I wanted to go to Dubai, Abu Dhabi. I got a job offer from there, but they canceled it last minute for 16,000 US dollars a month. I was like 28 years old, 16,000. That's a lot of cash. You know, I'll be balling all over the place, but anyway. But I didn't get it because of discrimination again. But it was a blessing in disguise that I came back to Kenya. I let go of the Deloitte offer from South Africa, came to Kenya and changed a lot of things because there I got a chance to re- to bring back Africa HackOn. And you know, through that, the amount of lives that have changed. People are doing full-time cybersecurity. All the guys that I was teaching via WhatsApp now, I can meet them and do workshops changed a lot of lives. When I see them right now driving cars, I'm like, wow, I can remember where you guys came from, which makes me proud of what I did. So I did uh work at Celluland for one year and after a year I think it was time for me to move on to something different. And at that time I was being oh by the way when I came back, I got almost 15 job offers right after celluland Because I came back full swing speaking at conferences. Every workshop I'm there, every conference I've just been called and I applied what that German fella taught me, which was, again, knowing my worth. I was go—I was called to present at a, at a conference in South Africa, because I met these guys in one of the hotels they trying to present something. I said, you guys are salespeople. You are not technical people, so you can't sell your product how it's supposed to be sold. Let me show you how it's done. And they said, how much will you charge? So I was going to tell them $200. These guys offered me $1,200 to fly. And then they would fly me to South Africa and still pay for my hotel, accommodate, everything. I was like, where was I going to charge them $200? And I remember that guy told me, your value, your time. I started calculating every amount of time that is spent to learn all the skills and everything. So it became now overwhelming. I have too many job offers. I don't know where to stick to. I don't know what I'm doing. Half the time, I don't know what I'm doing, by the way. In this cybersecurity space, you Google everything. So I left Celluland. I got an offer from uh, Internet Solutions at the time. Uh, the CEO, Richard Heckel, very good friend, still now, came and said, look, I want you to build a team, but I feel like it's a startup with money. We'll give you all the cash you need to do. And I wrote a proposal and he's like, lovely. This is what I want. Got approval and I moved to Internet Solutions, built a whole team from scratch. The first document I wrote that, what is cybersecurity? So what is cybersecurity services? And I said, people need this. We needed help. So we call it a managed security services. Where I'm going to be helping them with giving the extra help they need from the company, and that became a whole team. And my mentees, most of them, my mentees, I hired them, and they came to help me to build that brand. And it, it just what I got the good thing, like about the internet solutions at the time was they allow me to do what I want to do. They don't restrict me to oh it's nine to five stay here. I want to travel to go speak somewhere, I go. And that's where I got to learn a lot about personal branding a lot of people know what they do they're really good at that but they don't know how to bring it out that personal branding got me so many opportunities to go speak to people at places that I never would would have ever seen and that's how I got to reach the 152 presentations I've been in boardroom with billionaires and millionaires and I'm just there like how did I even get here like who who allowed me to walk in through this door to just speak to these people and it's, it's been a journey going on, you know, but that doesn't take out the fact that I still have challenges when it comes to career-wise, life in general, because it's pressure. Everybody's looking up to you, saying, Bright, you're the guy who knows this thing. You're the guy we want to be. And I'm like, guys, you're trying to, make me, you're trying to tell me to help you become me, but I'm also struggling to become someone better than that I am, which is a constant struggle. This whole imposter syndrome thing is not fake. It's real. In the world of, of work, right, in the work of careers or even at the entrepreneurship, you can never, ever, ever fulfill everything. I usually say you can fulfill up to about 70%, but it's always extra, so, so you keep on going back and forth. And I tell people that jobs pay you according to age. That's how I feel. They look at your the age, they're like, how are we gonna pay this guy? this max amount of money. You know, they can't pay you because they need to keep you longer because the longer you're there, the better for them. And getting to understand the, the, the PL, the profit and loss of the company and the likes, they need to actually match it to who they're paying. So you can get all the qualifications. I mean, like I had a PhD at 28. I should be swimming in money. You know, <laughs> I should be having job offers coming to me, not looking for them. But it's actually a thing that you... You They just won't take you because, first of all, you're coming. Also, the people in the organization might be of a lower grade. So now you can come and be on top of them, right? So there's a lot of dynamics when it comes to work areas. And so age is a factor. The qualification you have is also a factor. And you think you have all the qualifications, so you're going to get all the certifications and the like, So you're going to go above. But It's It's mostly politics. So people need to understand and engage the company and know even what job they're really applying for, that you just can't get it because you have all the qualifications, but you need to know exactly what position you're applying for, and you need to also play that politics. It's not an easy thing. It's, It's hard that you have everything, but you can't get the right position. So sometimes you get in just to go, you know, to elevate yourself as time goes on, rather than jumping in see you want to be at the top. But that doesn't mean, I'm not discouraging anybody from shooting their shot to be the MD of a company. It's, it's go, go ahead. But you have to play that politics. Any kind of job that you're looking for. That one, you can't, you
0: can't escape it. Catch more African stories in the next episode of Legally Clueless. Absolutely loved that story. I especially love when he talks about figuring out the value your time has and your value in general. That was difficult for me, uh, you know, career-wise. And sometimes I still doubt myself, even when I communicate to like potential clients, partners about my costs. I almost like wince, you know, like am I overvaluing myself, et cetera, cetera, and I have to call myself out on it. Anyway, I like that part. I think it's also like worth noting the very beginning, just like, I don't know if you have, children in your life that might be yours or you are support guardian <laughs> an aunt etc etc like if kids are involved in something that you may not understand there has to be an appreciation of okay they're interested in this thing i don't get it let me try and understand more so that i can support better instead of automatically just dismissing certain things you know so you can watch this story on our youtube channel it's in season two of our video series and the reason i want you to check it out is when he talks about having videos of emceeing in clubs turning up (laughs) and so much more the videos are are in that episode so you know if you want to visual head over to our youtube channel the link to that is in our show notes if you want to share your story on this podcast be the audio episodes or you want to be in season three of our video series we're going into production of that very soon just fill out the form in the show notes and I'll get back to you. If you're in Kenya, this podcast, please, on Trace Radio. Every Monday and Wednesday at 1pm and 11pm. Every Friday at 1pm. So just go to traceradio.co.ke for a list of all the frequencies that you can catch this podcast on. <laughs> in Kenya, that is. Thank you so much for listening to this episode to the very end. Remember